thanks for joining us for the Red View, Blue View podcast. I'm Caitlin, and I'm a conservative Republican who occasionally leans libertarian. And I'm Shelley. I'm an independent, progressive and left-leaning with a pinch of fiscal conservatism. We are two friends on opposite sides of the political aisle who share a love for talking about politics, current events, and social issues. We may not often agree, but we always learn from each other's points of view and believe it's important to have informed, civil conversations on issues that matter. Let's get started. to this month's lightning round, where we talk about a variety of issues that have been in the news lately. This is Shelley, and let's start with our first topic. This week, Trump was at a rally when he said, we're building a wall in Colorado. Caitlin, how is it we have elected a president of the United States that does not know U.S. geography, especially border geography, when he's been so focused on the wall since his election? I think it's a great question about electing presidents who don't know U.S. geography, because apparently it's a pretty common affliction among presidents and presidential candidates alike. Our listeners might remember that during the 2008 campaign, then-candidate Obama said he had been to, quote, 57 states and that he still had one more to go. And then just a few months ago, in a more serious example, presidential candidate Joe Biden made a pretty serious mix-up when he referenced mass shootings in Houston and Michigan, when in fact they had occurred in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. Point taken. Going back to Trump's statement, what do you think about you know him not realizing that the border doesn't run through Colorado? I don't think anyone seriously thinks that Trump thinks Colorado's along the southern border, just as I doubt that you think Obama believes there are 58 U.S. states. Now, Biden, on the other hand, who is definitely a gaffe machine, I'm a little less confident in his ability to remember where these important events happen. Um, but I just think it was a gaffe. Obviously, these politicians have every word scrutinized, especially Trump. They're human. They're going to make mistakes. No big deal in the grand scheme of things. Do you really think that he didn't in that moment think that the border runs through Colorado? His exact quote was, quote, and we're building a wall on the border of New Mexico and we're building a wall in Colorado. We're building a beautiful wall, a big one that really works that you can't get over. You can't get under. And we're building a wall in Texas. And we're not building a wall in Kansas, but they get the benefit of the walls that we just mentioned. And Louisiana is incredible. This was a speech given in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Do you really think that he didn't think in that moment that the border goes through Colorado? Yeah, I think he meant to say California. I think that's pretty obvious from the quote as he was going from the West Coast towards the East Coast along the southern border. And he just misspoke. No big deal. Obama's done it. Joe Biden does it constantly. It's really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. All right, let's go on to our next topic. Shelley, you and I have talked about climate change on previous episodes, and our regular listeners know that I don't think it's the existential crisis that many on the left seem to believe it is. All of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates believe strongly that we have a full-blown climate crisis. However, as is often the case with progressive politicians, their actions don't always align with their words. Now, I saw a recent example of this on Facebook. For some reason, Facebook regularly presents me with campaign ads for Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. I don't know why Facebook does that. They're definitely targeting the wrong people with those ads. Um, But both Warren and Buttigieg are currently promoting sweepstakes. So in exchange for a campaign donation, supporters will be entered to win round-trip air travel to meet the candidates. Now, this may be a small example, but if, in fact, the climate crisis is such an impending catastrophe, do you think it's hypocritical for these candidates to be promoting air travel instead of, say, a video conference with the candidates? No, I don't. Uh, First, 
flying, while it may not be environmental, is one of the only practical ways to travel long distance in our current day and age. Um, and so to suggest that environmentalists should not fly is impractical, if not impossible. But second, this idea of hypocrisy and environmentalism, we've heard this argument many times. The argument is that someone should live personally by what they promote politically. What it really implies is some sort of prohibition that until you're living in some perfect way, according to all the values that you espouse, that you're a hypocrite. And, and as a result, that maybe your espoused values are less meaningful. I think there's a logical impossibility with this idea because to change society, you have to exist in it. You have to survive in it. For example, I can't afford solar panels on my house, so my house is burning coal all day. I use Donald Trump's light bulbs because I like them. I like the incandescent light bulbs better than the LED light bulbs. But that doesn't mean that I can't think as a society we need to modify our infrastructure to rely less on coal and petroleum and more on renewable energy. You, Caitlin, are against abortion, but you're not expected to adopt every unwanted baby. So I don't think it's hypocritical to fly in airplanes and still think that government should act to reduce overall carbon emissions. But I'm not the one that thinks air travel is a big issue. In fact, Elizabeth Warren is. So in her 100% clean energy plan that she posted on the platform Medium earlier this month in October, part of it talks about decarbonizing other forms of transit. And I will quote directly. She says, my administration will invest in research that prioritizes decarbonization of long distance shipping and transportation, two of the most challenging sectors to decarbonize. Aviation pollution in particular remains fast growing. As president, I'll commit to international goals to hold climate pollution from civil aviation to 2020 levels and then reduce them over time. So I actually find it quite hypocritical for someone like Elizabeth Warren to say, hey, we need to reduce civil aviation pollution. This is one of the key contributors to our overall transportation pollution to then be doing a sweepstakes for her supporters to enjoy round trip air travel, I actually do find that hypocritical. And I think there is no way, and I don't believe strongly in the religion of climate change. I know that you do. I know you also don't consider it a religion. I do. It's not religion, it's science. It's not science, but we can talk about that separately. Regardless though, your point about you still choose incandescent light bulbs, you still choose to power your home using coal. How do you expect things to change if everyday people aren't making the sacrifices that especially politicians espouse that Americans need to make while they are still contributing to this so-called crisis. I think that is beyond hypocritical. And I think it's hard to say, hey, we can't really make changes on an individual level, but we can still believe in climate change. Those two things need to be in concert. Well, we can make some changes on, on, on an individual level. But what I'm saying is to espouse the, the, the greater good for the earth um, is kind of a different issue. What Elizabeth Warren is saying there in the quote that you just mentioned, she, one of the things she's talking about is improving, encouraging, or requiring airplane manufacturers to manufacture airplanes differently. There is already technology available. There are already airplanes that are being produced that have lower emissions. The technology is there, it's improving, it will continue to improve. And I think what she's referring to is that that's what the government should be supporting and promoting and requiring um, to help reduce emissions. But her campaign and all of us use air travel because if you work and you need to get somewhere, it's one of the only cost-effective and time-efficient ways to travel still. It's not hypocritical to get on an airplane and still think that there should be 
when that's the only again that's the only mode of transportation available that is practical and still think that emissions should be reduced and again to expect that that everyone live personally in a way that is consistent with what they espouse politically is not realistic in the adoption example I gave you and and, in many other areas it's not necessary to be perfect to espouse a better view of the world right but in this specific example there is no need for them to be promoting air travel this is purely a leisure winning a sweepstakes kind of prize right so it is for me to fly on a vacation right but if you were so serious about climate change you wouldn't do that like Greta Thunberg right who was who was lauded by the left for taking some boat across the ocean instead of flying so this idea that environmentalists aren't becoming more militant about reducing any form of transportation be it vehicles or airplanes or whatever that emit carbon Greta Thunberg is a great example of that I find that hypocritical. We just disagree. The other piece, though, that I do think is interesting. And I know Wait, but what they are doing, what environmentalists are doing, is trying to create a better infrastructure and get government to help create a better infrastructure so that the more environmental ways of travel are more accessible. So right now, the infrastructure is completely built around coal and petroleum, and that's what we want to change as environmentalists. I get it. In but you're meantime, promoting current living, transportation. Not promoting, but in the meantime, living within our means and our current system is an absolute necessity. Right. But this isn't a necessity, right? A sweepstakes to fly supporters across the country is certainly not a necessity. And and neither is vacation. Right. I agree. So hopefully you're taking vacations via train, I guess. No, but I am trying to get our government to change the infrastructure and to change. But uh, you want the government to change it, but you yourself are not willing to take individual actions to make a change. Well, again, why haven't you offered to adopt, you know, multiple children from 15-year-olds who become pregnant. That's not at all analogous. I'm not the one getting pregnant. I'm not the one making that choice to become pregnant. I'm not the one building the airplane that runs a certain way. But you are the one that believes climate change is a catastrophe, as do Warren and Pete Buttigieg. And you believe abortion is a catastrophe. I have never said abortion is a catastrophe. I'm against abortion, but I'm not having an abortion. You believe climate change is a catastrophe. It's an existential crisis. It's the biggest issue facing our world. But yet you fly to Mexico for for vacation. And I think that's great. Go to Mexico. We go to Mexico on vacation. But I'm not the one espousing this idea that climate change is a catastrophe. The other piece... I think it is analogous because, again, with abortion, you disagree with abortion because you disagree with a life being ended. And like, as we've talked about abortion in this podcast many times, you know, a 15, 16-year-old getting pregnant, I've argued to you that the 15 and 16-year-old's future and life is... Uh, more important than the life of the fetus and you disagree and so the way to resolve that would be to adopt those children and have no, more, no, no. more adoptions. The way to resolve that is to not have that person get pregnant to begin with, right? And we've talked about that. You and I both agree we need to reduce unwanted pre- pregnancy. But the way to solve the climate crisis is not by Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg flying people across the country to have a beer with a candidate. The way to solve it is... That to me smacks of political elitism is such a, a kind of do as I say, not as I do approach. It's not do as I say, not as I do. The, the approach is just what she said it is, which is to change infrastructure so okay. that there are more feasible and more practical modes of transportation that 
reduce carbon emissions. Yeah, she actually doesn't say change the infrastructure, but we can agree to disagree. The other piece that I think is really interesting, Pete Buttigieg was called out at the CNN Climate Crisis Town Hall that happened in September. He has spent more money on private air travel than any other candidate in the Democrat primary. Now, when he was asked about this in that town hall, he said, quote, this is a very big country and I'm running to be president of the whole country. Do you find that hypocritical, that Pete Buttigieg is perfectly fine for him to fly private, not commercial. He's perfectly happy to fly private, but yet he's telling the rest of us everyday Americans we shouldn't be using plastic straws, we shouldn't be eating as much meat because those things are so damaging for the environment. What do you think about that? I know you're a fan of Mayor Pete. I do like Mayor Pete. Same thing. These are the same principles. He's running a campaign. He's Everyone who's running a campaign is expected to fly all over the country. Private. Either way, uh, he's probably visiting more places as a result of that. That's part of his campaign. It's a grassroots campaign to visit as many people as possible. Someone in his position, that's absolutely necessary to even have a shot at this, at at, uh, winning the the nomination. So Again, it's it's necessary and, and practical for what he's trying to accomplish. And again, there are, there is technology coming, becoming available slowly that will reduce emissions by airplanes. And that is the bigger issue and more yeah. important issue. Doesn't exist Not today. Buttigieg. Doesn't exist today. But, uh, so it I does exist. Im- it's There's some planes that are being built that are better than others. Okay. But um, So I would imagine yeah. you're okay then with Trump flying around um, to go to rallies and things as well, right? If it's okay for Democrats, it's okay for Republicans. Yes. I don't okay. like um, him using tax dollars to do it. Other than that, yes. Okay, great. That brings us to our next topic. There was an article entitled Colorado Abortion Rates Declining, dated October 21st, 2019 in the Colorado Sun, and it attributes the decline in abortion rates to increased access to birth control. Specifically, the article says, in 2017, Colorado became only the third state to allow pharmacists to write prescriptions for the pill, so someone doesn't have to make and pay for a doctor's appointment, get a pelvic exam to get the pill. Similarly, the morning after pill has been available in Colorado since only 2013. And secondly, the article says that federal and state funding of IUDs, uh, a private grant and then federal and state funding have helped. Um, I think you, Caitlin, agree with me that access to birth control is a good thing, but do you agree with me that federal or state funding of it is also a good thing? Yeah, I think it's great news that the number of abortions are coming down in Colorado as well as other states. And I do agree that I think having expanded access to birth control is definitely a good thing. The article that you referenced from the Colorado Sun seems to indicate that the only cause uh, of the reduced abortion number in Colorado is because of increased access to birth control and the funding. I agree that it's a contributor, but I'm not sure it's the sole cause. And I say that because abortion rates are actually down nationwide, but obviously not every state is funding free birth control. So I think the Colorado Sun uh, has made a little bit of a connection in their analysis that I don't know is, is entirely accurate. I think that there are other factors, and you probably agree with me, Shelley, things like expanded awareness risks of pregnancy, general sex education that are also big contributors to the overall national number of abortions that is on the decline. But yes, I think access to birth control is a great thing. Funding for birth control is a different issue. I think both Republicans and Democrats have always agreed, certainly over the last five or 10 years, birth control uh, should be more accessible. It should be over the counter. The disagreement is on the insurance coverage. How does that play into the Affordable Care Act, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare? 
and who pays for it. I am not as in favor of taxpayers having to fund someone else's birth control. That's where I, I wondered, since I know you, you are against abortion and we know that increased access to birth control reduces abortion, mm -hmm. the numbers cited in the article are this. Colorado spent $28 million in grant funds between 2009 and 2017 to supply IUDs to 75 public health clinics in Colorado, including several inside high schools. Teens received 43,714 free IUDs between 2009 and 2016, thanks to a grant and then later the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. And the birth rate for girls ages 15 to 19 in Colorado dropped by more than half during that eight-year period falling 59% from 2009 to 2017. That is a massive drop in teenage abortions. And it, it seems to me clear that it, at least in part is due to this increased access to birth control. By increased access, I mean easy, low cost or free access that is um, at least in part connected to a massive 60% drop in teen abortions. So if you're against abortion and against taxpayer abortions, why not be in favor of some, some federal and state aid, and I don't think it's a lot of money, by the way, um, some federal and state funding to make birth controls just more freely available to young people. Yeah, again, I think you and many on the left, including Planned Parenthood and other organizations, um, conflate access with affordability. There's an interesting data point, Kaiser Family Foundation, which does a lot of kind of medical or healthcare oriented research. They did a study in 2017. I don't know how many were surveyed, but almost 95% of the women surveyed in that, in that Kaiser study had employer subsidized birth control coverage. Now, I know that 6% or 5% is still a lot of people out there, especially younger people or perhaps poor people, but the reality is my understanding, and maybe you know differently, is birth control, particularly birth control pill, is not a particularly expensive option. It's typically 8 to $10 a month out of pocket if you were just to go into your local pharmacy. And the study you just mentioned has to do with employer plans, so that we're not talking about but my point is, unemployed people or teenagers. But my point is you've got people that have an employer-provided insurance plan that covers birth control. You have many poor people or younger people, lower-income people that are covered by Medicare that is providing that as well. It's covered under ACA. There are some exemptions for religious organizations and things. My point is, I think for most people that are covered either under a government health care plan like Obamacare or an employer-provided insurance plan, birth control is already covered. So I'm, I'm unclear on really what the issue is. I think the fact that pharmacies can now issue it over the counter is a great thing. Republicans honestly have been pushing for that since 2013. It's gotten a lot of pushback from Democrats. It's gotten a lot of pushback from Planned Parenthood because they make money on gynecological exams and things like that. So I think if the issue is access, I don't think there's any doubt that both Republicans and Democrats agree in access. The issue is on the payment. My argument is that I think the data shows most people, the majority of women in the U.S., have either all of that cost covered or the majority of that cost covered today. So I'm not sure what we're trying to solve for. I mean, I think when you say majority, you're, you're leaving out teens and low-income people. Not if they're um, covered under Medicare, because Medicare covers birth control today. And teens can be covered under their parents' plan under Obamacare. Right, I mean, but what then you have excluded? to go to your parents to get the birth control, right? So that, that doesn't work. So you want to give teens free birth control without their parents knowing about it? I want to give teens free birth control, yes. Okay, well, then you and I just disagree on that. So even if it greatly, we're talking in this study, 60% reduces teen abortions. 
Yeah, I think reducing abortions is fine, but I don't think having free birth control is the driving factor of that. I think that is absolutely a contributor. But again, overall abortion rates are down, even in states that don't fund free birth birth control, even in states that don't have over-the-counter birth control, which I know is a, a relatively recent phenomenon here in Colorado. So this idea that it's only because of over-the-counter plus free products, to me, doesn't hold water. I think it's it's clearly increased access, whether that means a lot of times discounted or free and more available without having to make doctor's appointments. I think those are clearly big contributors, and I think we should be supporting that both um, at the federal and state level. Yeah, I will say this. If I had to choose between funding birth control or funding abortions with my tax dollars, of course I would fund birth control, and I think you would be the same. But I think you're okay with funding both, right? You're okay with taxpayers funding both birth control and abortion. Yeah, I have a problem with this idea. You espouse personal responsibility as one of the big issues here. I have a problem with that being applied differently to poor people and wealthy people. I think that wealthy people will always be able to get abortions no matter how restricted they are. They can travel to a different state. They can privately pay someone. They will find ways always. Whereas poor people will be the ones stuck in poverty by being forced to to carry pregnancies. So, and, and the same is true for, for birth control. Access to birth control is easier among more affluent people. And I don't, I don't think we want to see a bunch of poor teenagers without the access or without the wherewithal to find the birth control. We don't want to see them getting pregnant. Yeah, but I think my position on personal responsibility is 100% consistent on this issue. If you are responsible enough to have sex, you need to be responsible enough to be providing for birth control, either you're on your own or with your partner, ideally. And guess what? If you can't afford birth control, there is a 100% guaranteed way not to get pregnant, and that is to be abstinent, right? You will never be faced with an abortion. You will never have an unwanted pregnancy, and abstinence is 100% free. So I am a big believer in personal responsibility. I don't think that that changes if you're low income, high income, or anywhere in between. Make the smart choice. Take responsibility for yourself. If you're going to engage in sexual activity, you need to provide for birth control for yourself. That is not my responsibility as a taxpayer to make that decision for you. It's just that the reality is that it happens, that people get pregnant and that a lot of pregnancies are unwanted. And the reality is that access to birth control prevents that. And not access, cost, right? I want to make sure we're being clear. By access, I also mean cost. I mean both. But that's what I'm saying. Those are different things. No, I think that access includes cost. Yeah, I disagree. Because having a low cost or free option makes the the item more accessible. So I think um, having access to and having low cost birth control is a no-brainer to avoid abortions. I think it's a great step, a great thing that we should be able to agree on, federal and state funding for that. Well, I think the only segment, like you said, is you want to give teens free birth control. Every other segment is covered, right, under employer-provided insurance or, and there may be some exceptions for religious organizations, which maybe you disagree with. Well, this study is mostly about teens, a 60% drop in teen abortions because of increased access. That's a huge drop in abortions. I think, I think that's evidence that we should permit some federal or state funding of birth control. Yeah, I just, I disagree with you on conflating access and cost, but we just disagree on it. All right, next topic. Shelly, a story out of Texas has been making national news recently, and it's one that many of our listeners have probably heard about. I'm referring to the story of seven-year-old James Younger, who is sadly in the middle of a custody battle between his parents who are divorcing. However, it's much worse than just that. James's mom believes that James is transgendered and is pushing to begin hormone therapy on him, including up to chemical castration, to help him transition to a girl. James's dad does not think James is transgendered and is trying to stop the mom 
Tom from pursuing what will certainly be life-changing and permanent changes to his biology. This case recently went in front of a Texas jury and the jury found in favor of the mom. However, it has now garnered attention from the state's attorney general and governor. Two days ago, a Texas family court judge granted joint managing conservatorship, meaning that the dad and mom have equal decision-making power as it relates to James's health. Now, Shelly, I know you're passionate about LGBTQ issues and supporting transgender people. I'm interested to know your thoughts on this case. Some have called this specific situation an example of child abuse on the part of the mother. Do you agree? No. What I see here is a somewhat typical horrible family law case that's become public because of the conservative media outrage and some outrage by conservative Texas politicians making this case very public and making it a greater statement than it really is. This is one family, one family that's very small, where like many family law cases, the mom and dad hate each other, disagree on everything, and are willing to use the child in their disputes, thereby harming the child. Sadly, this happens to thousands of kids a year. They become products of bad judicial processes. Their parents exploit the issues. And it's unfortunate that the conservative media sort of isn't concerned about that larger problem, just this one particular case, because it's got a transgender issue in it that's blown up in the news. So that's the first thing. So can I just ask you, so you think, you think, quote unquote, conservative media is only interested in this case because the boy is transgender? Absolutely. You're not worried about the chemical castration elements or any of that? Well, so that that term chemical castration and you used in your in your sentence a few minutes ago that the mom is pushing for hormone therapy when i read this story in non-conservative media reports um what like i what what i under, like the washington post okay. um, what so I liberal reports more factual reports than the new york post what i understood from those stories is that she's not pushing the mom is not pushing for hormone therapy she's pushing for some sort of medical or therapy for what she believes is her transgender son that is medically appropriate. And my understanding of what's medically appropriate for a seven-year-old is not hormone therapy. It's simply acceptance. So what she's what she was actually pushing for is acceptance. But the second thing is that this is just a custody battle between a set of parents in Texas. It's not a court case about his medical care. It's not a court case related to the transgender or medical treatment of this child. It's just a custody case. The dad had one two-hour visit per week and one overnight per month. That's all the dad had before this dispute arose. Then he filed to stop the mom from treating the child as transgender. She, in turn, filed for custody and won the custody case. Apparently, the court found that custody was better with the mom. We don't know all the facts behind that decision. That does not mean that a court ruled on anything but custody. So it's just a custody battle between two parents. It's nothing bigger than that. It does not make legal precedent on a transgender child issue. If the conservative media wants to focus on the transgender issue in this case, then let's look at those. Unlike what... The New York Post, your article reported, um, and unlike what Senator Ted Cruz tweeted about the case, I read that there are no, again, no facts to suggest that the mom is going to begin hormone replacement therapy. The medical treatment typically recommended for seven-year-olds who are experiencing gender dysphoria is mere acceptance, no life-altering drugs. So what we're talking about here is the conservative media has failed to report that what really happened in this case, again, it's a custody case between two parents. We've got a little boy who likes to paint his nails and put on a dress. 
which by the way, thousands of little boys want to do. This is not a big deal. This is not a tragic situation that the conservative media has tried to paint. No court has ruled that she can give him hormone blockers. You just mentioned that a couple days ago, the court in fact ruled that the parents have joint medical decision-making. So that hasn't happened. She's not giving him hormone blockers. It's probably not going to happen. But also, will any parent screw up and make bad decisions that affect their kid negatively? I mean, in millions of cases, every day, we've got parents teaching their children racist views. We have parents physically abusing their children. Um, I'd like to see the conservative media show outrage at those stories instead of this one story that happens to have a transgender issue, but it's really just about custody. Wow, I find it fascinating. You are bending over backwards to paint this as some conservative media conspiracy, this and that. I'm just concerned about this little boy. You've got a mom who's not the biological mother, by the way. They are in a custody battle. I think it should be concerning to any American, much less a mother like you and I both are, that there is the potential for a seven-year-old boy to potentially be faced with hormone therapy, with puberty blockers. That's exactly what the, what happened on Friday. My understanding is that the Texas Family Court judge said that there is no way that those things can move forward at this point, which to me indicates that that's what the mom was asking. So maybe I have a well, misunderstanding there, but I am, I am surprised that you are more focused on the fact that this is a, quote, conservative media story. Uh, and yes, I shared an article from the New York Post, but you can see, find the same thing from NBC. Maybe you consider that conservative media. Are you concerned about the health of this boy? Are you concerned about a child being identified as transgender by his mom, not by the dad. There is a, a lot of evidence that I've read that this boy only acts this way with his mother, does not act this way with his father or other That's family what his friends. Dad says. There are other family friends that have testified in court that they have never seen this child indicate anything. So what I agree with you on is I personally don't think that seven-year-olds should be engaged in hormone blocking therapy and chemical... Puberty blockers or whatever. Puberty blockers. Um, yeah. But what I'm telling you is that that wasn't happening in this case. That wasn't about to happen in this case. The second part of the case that just broke a couple days ago was, yes, that was on who will have dis uh, medical decision-making. And the court in that case ruled that it will be joint. But prior to that, it was just a custody case. Again, the dad only had a couple hours uh, a week of time with this child, and the mom had already been granted custody of him the rest of the time. And then after a trial, was granted custody of him all of the time. So for whatever reason, the court decided she is the best person to have custody of this child. And that's what this case was about. To make it about transgender children receiving hormone blocking therapy, it wasn't about that. And yes, it absolutely is a failure of the conservative media to report all the facts. Wow, it's so fascinating. I didn't send you any, well, I guess you consider NBC News conservative media and New York Post, because all of this that I'm talking about... New York Post is definitely conservative. Okay, so NBC News apparently is too, because the, they're reporting the same information. So you and I disagree. I am more focused on the health and well-being of this boy. You seem to be more focused on some conservative media spin on this story. So I think we just strongly disagree on, on what the important aspect of this story is. But let's move on. Okay, next topic. As our listeners know, I'm very progressive and more liberal than many Democrats, but I am a fiscal conservative. Sometimes we agree on fiscal issues. I think we both 
recently voted the same way on a, a Colorado tax proposal. So I'm, I'm very careful on raising taxes, but with respect to lowering them for the ultra wealthy while the middle class stays the same, that's not okay. So I'm curious to ask if it's okay with you. There's a New York Times article that I sent you dated October 6, 2019, entitled, The Rich Really Do Pay Lower Taxes Than You. It talks about the change in this data over the past decade or two, and that now, for the first time on record, the 400 wealthiest Americans last year paid a lower total tax rate, spanning federal, state, and local taxes, than any other income group. The data shows that for middle and low income Americans, their tax rate has remained mostly flat, it hasn't gone up or down much, but for the very wealthiest Americans, and I'm not talking about the top 1%, the article is about the top 0.1%, the very, very wealthiest Americans, it has gone way down to a combined rate of 23%. So my question, Caitlin, is in my lifetime, Republicans have never lowered taxes for the middle class. I don't view them as a party of lower taxes, even though they run on that platform. So my question to you is, how can your party continue to run on a platform of reducing taxes? So this topic comes up often, this idea that only the wealthy benefited from the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act and that the middle class didn't benefit is simply preposterous. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand the New York Times piece she referenced is not a news article, it's an op-ed uh, written by a, gay, a guy named David Linhart. And he basically based his piece on a new book that came out recently from two UC Berkeley progressive economists. Now the methodology of that book in terms of how taxes were calculated and identified and which taxes were included or not has been questioned by other economists. I found a great article from Forbes that really debunks most of the claims that are in that New York Times op-ed as well as in the book overall. We will post both the New York Times piece as well as the contrary piece from Forbes uh, so that listeners can make up their own minds. But the average reduction in tax liability for all Americans from Trump's Tax Cuts Act was 25%. I think this idea, starting with this idea that, you you know, the wealthy benefit more from tax cuts. Of course they do. They have more of the tax burden, right? So the top 0.1% that you just referenced, in 2017, they paid 24% of income taxes. And the top 10% of income earners in 2017 paid 81% of taxes. Now remember, we've talked about this before, the income threshold for top 10% is about $139,000 filing jointly. So many, many American families meet that threshold. So I'm talking about something different. And first of all, I disagree with you that middle-class Americans have felt any real benefit from Trump's tax cuts. I think that's completely false. But what I was asking you with respect to this data is talking about the top 0.01%. So that's people who make seven to $19 million annually in income. All right. So those are people who are making a lot of income off of investments, not off of uh, work on a daily basis. <laughs> you so, say that all the time. By the way, you don't make that level of income without working. You are a business owner. You are a Jeff Bezos. You are a correct. whomever. You have that's, created a company. You employ thousands of people. I always take issue with your claim that those people aren't working. Those people are working. You're right. But they're working. But we're, when we're talking about people who are earning 7 to $19 million per year, um, we are talking about the ultra wealthy. I think we both agree. Sure. We're not talking I about the top, top 10%. We're talking ultra about wealthy. The, the very, very top you know, 0 0.01%. And by the way, any American that has an investment account, a 401k, what have you, they are also benefiting from what you call investing. So that is certainly not limited to the ultra wealthy. Well, so what the data said that I was asking you about shows that that top 0.01%, that its combined tax rate, and I don't think you disagree with this, its combined tax rate, state, federal, and local, has gone 
significantly down in the last 50 years, while everyone else's has kind of remained flat. That's one issue. So what, what I want to ask you about, Caitlin, is sort of wealth inequality. And let me respond to that, because that tax rate I do disagree with. And that's this Forbes piece that I encourage our listeners to read, because that book, again, that the New York Times columnist is basing his opinion piece on from the Berkeley Economist, they made assumptions about 2018 taxes, and that's where they did a lot of their calculations. They were selective about which taxes they included and excluded, things like earned income tax credits, child tax credits, things like that. The Forbes piece outlines it in detail. So I do disagree with you that the tax rate is coming down because other economists, other financial analysis has said, no, that's not in fact the case. The tax rate for the wealthiest Americans is still the highest. We still have a progressive income tax rate. And regardless of the tax rate, regardless of the percentage that the ultra wealthy, quote unquote, are paying, I don't honestly care if that has vacillated a little bit and if it's coming down a little bit. I think the data point from the IRS that says 0.1% of income earners pay 24% of income taxes, that to me is a very compelling point to talk about them paying their fair share. Well, then let me ask you this. So we're talking about the money collected, right? Which when we collect less money and, and we spend too much money, that's one of the ways we arrive at the deficit. There was a Washington Post article dated October 25th, 2019, that says that our deficit is up 50% since Trump took office. In 2013, when federal debt totaled $16.7 trillion, Trump tweeted that Obama was our biggest debt spender in nation's history. Uh, the federal government is now more than $22 trillion in debt. The government is spending around $380 billion in interest payments on its debt last year, which is as much as we spend on Medicaid. Military spending has also risen dramatically under Trump from about $550 billion to $700 billion in 2019. So we've got less money coming in, we have more money going to interest on our debt, more money going to the military, and as a result, we've got a deficit that's almost doubled, even though Trump said that he was going to reduce the deficit. Does that trouble you? Do you Are you worried about the massive growing deficit? Yes, of course. We've talked about that on numerous episodes. I've been very disappointed in the lack of fiscal restraint that Congress, both sides of the aisles, including Republicans who should be the stewards of tax dollars, I think spending is completely out of control. But I think this idea that the Trump Tax Cuts and Job Act has completely accelerated that deficit isn't true based on the numbers. So the estimate of that uh, impact for the Tax Cuts and Job Act was estimated to reduce tax revenues between one and one and a half trillion dollars over 10 years. The CBO estimates that government will spend $57.8 trillion over the next 10 years. So deficit increasing because Trump has somehow given tax credits to the ultra wealthy and corporations that's only a trillion or a trillion and a half over 10 years. The bigger issue is spending. We have a problem with spending, and I 100% agree. I am very disappointed in Congress's role in reining those things in. It is crazy. Even our Republican Congress. Both sides of the aisle 100% agree with that. Yeah, well, we agree. We agree on that. I'm concerned with Republicans still getting credit for being so-called fiscally conservative when a lot of this has happened. Yeah, under I don't call them fiscal conservatives anymore. I am a fiscal conservative, and I wish that my Republican slash conservative leadership 
was more interested in those issues than they seem to be. If they really were, by the way, I might vote for one of them. But the fact that they're not actual fiscal conservatives, I feel like they have the Republican voter voting population duped into thinking that they're fiscal conservatives when they're not. We're not duped. You're talking to me right now. There is no wool over the eyes of Republicans. I think if you were to talk to an everyday true conservative, true Republican, you would find the same level of disappointment that you're hearing from me. I don't think there's any duping going on with the Republican electorate. So let me ask you this then about economic policy. I think we agree on fiscal conservatism. I want to know if you're as concerned with I am about the wealth inequality, which is kind of the where I started with the tax issue. Bernie has said recently that over the past 40 years, GDP per person in this country has doubled. CEO pay has increased 1,000%. CEOs who got $30 for every $1 a worker made now get $278 for every $1 a worker makes. The median wage has grown only $2 an hour since 1978. There is a growing disparity in the United States. The middle class is shrinking and we have a growing gap between the ultra-wealthy and everybody else. Are you concerned about that as a Republican? I love these talking points. Let's address that that point that you just made about the middle class is shrinking. You're correct, the middle class is shrinking, but the good news is, according to the 2016 census, it's because middle class people are now moving into upper class. As the census defines upper class, we now have almost 30% of the country in that upper class income bracket. The middle class has been shrinking, but not because of bad reasons, it's because of good reasons. People are are moving up the ladder, so to speak, economically. So the fact that we have a shrinking middle class, you've got to look at the whole bucket of data to understand that. It's because they're leaving middle class and moving into upper class. 30% of people in the U.S. make $100,000 or more as a household. That's phenomenal. That should be celebrated and that should be considered an economic success. The other piece that I love, and I don't have the data in front of me, but I love the comparison that liberals make about, well, CEOs make X thousand times times more than frontline workers. Of course they do. Jeff Bezos, you think he should be making the same amount as some guy working in an Amazon warehouse? You think Brian Roberts of Comcast, NBC Universal, didn't spend 30 years of his life building up this incredible company, making the hard decisions, investing capital. There is a reason why CEO pay is hundreds of times, thousands of times more than your average worker. That makes sense. I find that such a foolish comparison. Yeah, but the issue is in the last 40 years, how much it's changed. Maybe we were all fine with it 40 years ago when a CEO made 30 times what the worker makes, but now, according to that data, they're making 274 times what the So what's what the right makes. number? What's, what's tolerable I, for you? Oh, I don't know. But that increase alone shows the growing wealth disparity that I'm, I'm asking you about. Not when you have middle class it. families moving into the upper class, right? The rising tide raises all boats. So I think the fact that CEOs are doing better, I think the fact that we have more what you call ultra wealthy people in, in this country is great news. I think we should be celebrating upward mobility. I think we should be celebrating success. I think those are good things. I don't know why many on the left seem to think that's bad news for America. All right, our last topic today comes from beautiful Seattle. Now, I'm a fan of the city of Seattle. However, this recent story from the Emerald City is pretty nuts. Earlier this month, Seattle Public Schools published a document called the, quote, Math Ethnic Studies Framework. Among other things, the framework states that math is used to, quote, disenfranchise minorities and people of color. Now, this approach, as you might imagine, has been mocked as basically stating math is racist. In response, the Seattle Public Schools ethnic studies manager was quoted as saying, nowhere in this document says that math is inherently racist. It's how math is used as a tool for oppression. 
Hmm. Okay, Shelley, what do you think about this idea of including math as part of a broader ethnic studies or social justice type curriculum? Well, the first thing I think is this is another example of the conservative media making a story that should be about education about something very small. What that article or what you just described doesn't explain is that Seattle did this in all classes, not just math classes. So I'm curious to hear if you agree that ethnic studies and social studies, history, economy, literature makes sense. I agree with you that I don't necessarily personally understand how math has led to the oppression of people. But what's more interesting to me is what this proposal was based on. The 2016 Stanford University report looked at ethnic studies classes in San Francisco high schools and found that attendance increased by 21% and GPA increased by 1.4 grade points. There were significant effects on GPA specific to math and science, the study said, and boys and Hispanic students improved the most. In other words, including ethnic studies generally in school is a good thing. How do we address ethnic studies in math? I don't know. Maybe that's learning about great mathematicians that happen to be people of color. I read that one of the lessons they'll now teach is exploring math's roots, quote, in the ancient histories of people and empires of color. Well, that sounds harmless to me. Also, they're talking about how to use math in their communities to make the world a better place. So basically, they've, what they've done here in Seattle is they've incorporated ethnic studies into every single subject. They just didn't exclude math, which is apparently very upsetting to the conservative media who can't understand why ethnic studies would be involved with math at all. Gosh, I have to just say, it's a little bit annoying to me that every news source I offer, you label as a conservative news source just because you disagree with it. This article I sent you was from the Seattle Times. That's the local paper in Seattle. I don't think anyone would argue that Seattle Times is a conservative news Agreed, source. Agreed, but it's the conservative media that has kind of jumped on this issue with ethnic studies and math in Seattle. Did you read the Seattle Times article I sent you? Because that's how yes, they phrased it. And okay. I saw it in some other outlets as well. Okay, so I find it interesting that the bulk of the framework that was published in the Seattle Times, a conservative news source according to you, doesn't actually talk about uh, identifying mathematicians uh, that were you know, people of color and highlighting their accomplishments. Which sure, I, agree. I, I think that's in, great. I, I looked in other places to Yeah, did you read the framework? Uh, no. The framework talks about what does it mean to do math? How important is it to be right? Who gets to say if an answer is right? Can you recognize and name oppressive mathematical practices in your experience? So I guess I would challenge you, just know that I'm actually reading the source information. I'm reading the framework. I'm not just referring to conservative news sources like the Seattle Times because I try to be well-researched and I try to look at what I would consider non-biased primary source data. Well, I'm looking at the same thing you are, but you're leaving out some of the major things here. The curriculum is to identify ancient mathematicians and their contributions to mathematics. Again, people of color and their contributions to mathematics. I think that's great. I just said I don't have an issue with that. So it's only part of the curriculum that you're upset with. 100%. Do you agree that... Trying to tie math with a culture of oppression and asking students, tell me about a time when you've seen math be oppressive, that to me feels like a bit of a stretch. How about incorporating ethnic studies into history... Uh, language arts, social studies, of and the course. rest of the subjects. I think that's great. So you're math fine. is a hard science. You're fine. That this is like Seattle applying this is like applying ethnic studies to chemistry. So you're fine that Seattle's incorporated ethnic studies into all subjects, but you want them to have excluded math. 
because it's sort of a more well, right first wrong. of all, I would never want my child to go to Seattle public schools. I can only imagine what their quote unquote ethnic studies looks like. But why don't you tell me, Shelley, how do you think ethnic studies, other than the example that you just gave, which I agree with, I think if they want to use ethnic studies to highlight mathematicians of color, I would hope math teachers are doing that anyway without having it be dictated to them by some ethnic studies manager in the district. But what about this idea of students having to come up with ideas about how math is oppressive, who gets to make a determination around what, how, if math is right or wrong? Don't subjects like math or chemistry or things like that, don't those seem like those should be outside of this idea of ethnic studies? Well, I, I do agree with you that it's certainly more easy to incorporate ethnic studies into history and social studies and language arts. Um, literature, and I think that's a good thing. And as I mentioned, there are studies that show that this is increasing GPA and increasing the education level of kids. So I think that's all good. Do I expect not for them, math though? Because they haven't done it. But yet. do I expect them to exclude math because it's sort of got this right and wrong? That's the first thing here on this framework that you just handed me. The first learning target is identifying ancient mathematicians and their contributions to mathematics. In other words, look students, there are these people of color who have been famous mathematicians. I'll bet you didn't know that. Turns out that isn't taught in a lot of uh, curricula around the country. So I don't know why that's a bad thing. The fact that the word oppression comes in here, no, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it and I couldn't teach it, but you know, it's not my area. So I think it's, it's frustrating that conservative media sort of picks this one we're not going to talk about ethnic studies being incorporated into social studies literature and how good that is. And then we're not going to talk about how it might be good in a couple areas of math. We're just going to talk about how, and I, I agree with you, I don't, I don't know how math has oppressed people. I don't know the answer to that question. But the fact that that's being asked in some classroom in Seattle is so offensive to conservatives that they would focus on that and not the rest of the story, I think is limiting. Okay, listeners, thanks for listening. We're out of time. Please like us on Facebook or Instagram or Apple Podcasts.